Welcome to Give and Take. It's a podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, activists, authors, theologians, philosophers, scholars, political pundits, and a host of others about their world, their work, and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a conversation that's free-flowing, entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, oftentimes enlightening and informative, and above all else, deeply human. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. Friends, you are in for a real treat on this episode. My guest is Matisse Baton. He's a student of political theory at Yale University. His writing focuses on liberalism and its discontent, Confucian and Islamic thought, city-states and institution building. I came across him via social media from an article he wrote called The Rise of Post-Liberal Man. It's a brilliant political analysis. I dare you to try to map this guy. I had a tough time doing it. His writing is brilliant. His political insights are prescient. And I think that really he's one of these kind of thought leaders that really we want to pay attention to in contemporary thought because we're in politically tumultuous times and just tumultuous times in general in Western life. And I think this guy is someone that could help us navigate the way forward. You know, I was uh, on the edge of my seat during the whole conversation. I hope you are too. So with no further ado, I give you Matisse Bitten. Matisse, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. So this week uh, you wrote a piece, or last week I suppose, called The Rise of Post-Liberal Man. So it was posted, it came up in my Facebook feed. It caused rousing discussions with several friends of mine. Uh, It it really uh, was a pretty stimulating piece that in which you talk about kind of two conceptions of politics as sort of pre-modern politics where politics is is more than just procedural more than just negative it 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 actually is trying to form people to live a certain way in a kind of polis and you 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 chart a shift right to a kind of liberal negative form of politics is that sort of the inspiration for the article and and your and the implications of of where these things take us yeah so i mean my starting point is to say that in ancient political thought, one of the things you notice when you, you study Aristotle, Plato, and the likes is that their primary concern when it comes to political philosophy is the kinds of citizens that regimes produce. So in the Republic, Plato famously says you need to analyze democracy in terms of democratic man, aristocracy in terms of aristocratic man, and so on. So every time, the first order concern of politics is what kinds of people we're producing in the society we're creating. And basically, what I'm saying is that with the rise of kind of classical liberal thought uh, in the 17th and 18th century, this concern kind of not doesn't fully disappear, but basically takes the backseat for other more procedural concerns. So a whole language of kind of individual rights, liberties, freedoms gets introduced and becomes primary. And this concern of kind of what we might call the common good, quote unquote, or more substantive, comprehensive definitions of politics takes second stage. And understandably so, because, you know, liberalism emerged as a kind of negative ideal, as a as a response to what they perceive to be sources of oppression. One of the things they say in the piece is that liberals really know, or liberal theorists know what they don't want. They don't want oppression. They don't want domination. They don't want this sort of thing. But they don't really know what they do want, which is to say they don't really concern themselves with providing a, a kind of substantive, comprehensive definition of the good life um, to citizens. And essentially what the article is saying is, I think that this is a problem for liberalism, and I think we're at the moment where we're seeing kind of postmodern 
reactions to liberalism that take a pre-modern inspiration insofar as they all try to, again, use politics to, pro to promote something a bit more substantive and comprehensive than just kind of procedural bulwarks against domination and this sort of thing. You can understand liberalism's motivation, right? You have, you know, the 30 years war, you have lots of people killing each other over religious uh, uh, divisions and things. And so on some level, liberalism in, in European history seems like a reaction to, um, again, what you're saying, like, they know what they don't want. They don't want oppression. They don't want um, people killing each other over creed or, or confession and things like this. So liberalism, it seems, it come it develops not not to form a sort of people for a certain kind of policy, but to just minimize conflict and manage conflict, right? Between competing egoisms and things like this. It's, it, it's, I mean, it's negative for a reason, right? Because it, 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 it comes about, I guess, to solve a problem. Although I will say, I think that the, the history of liberal, of liberal political thought is the history of liberalism becoming thinner and more negative. So actually, if you take a look at the early kind of liberal theorists, they did have a more substantive view of what kind of liberal man ought to look like. So you read John Stuart Mill, for instance, or Benjamin Constant, the French philosopher. Both of them speak of what liberal men ought to look like. They say, you know, liberalism does provide a positive conception of the good life. Um, liberal man is a little more rational a little more tolerant, a little more enthusiastic about commercial life than his predecessors. You know, they have a set of qualities that they do want to maximize, and they do argue substantively that these promote the good life. I think as time goes by, you see liberalism becoming kind of more and more procedural and more and more kind of embracing that negative ideal. And the, the culmination of that is, is John Rawls in the 20th century, where you see an iteration of liberalism that explicitly tries to remain neutral vis-a-vis -vis different conceptions of the good and explicitly says, you know, we're going to leave the question uh, of the good life outside the room. We're going to come to the table and agree on things that allow us to do kind of what we please to reconcile competing visions of the good life. And I think, I think that's kind of a shift, actually, because even if liberalism in practice was a reaction to a repressive order, the degree to which early liberal theorists and philosophers were enthusiastic about the possibility of liberalism to provide a conception of the good life by and for itself um, has weakened. Now, one of the things I think you – and I want to, by the way, congratulate you on brevity. I mean, I, I think very few people, especially in academic circles – have mastered the art of brevity. And this is a very clear piece that you, I mean, it, it's, there's a real uh, elan it takes to, to write clearly and, and deeply with brevity. But you, you summarize the sort of anthropological anchors of the liberal uh, man and or, or the, or the modern liberal individual. And it's individualization and rationalization, right? The important thing is you consider yourself kind of an atomistic individual, right? So so now everything is is into the smallest possible part, right? Like, well, what's a family, a group of, of individuals, right? Or what's, what's, what's a city, a group of family? Like it's everything. Let's try to break it down to the smallest individual part and rationalization, right? That, that people, uh, the instrumental reason is the thing that, that reigns supreme, right? And so a real good liberal person is one that above all functions with instrumental reason. And, and you kind of look at like, well, this is so much of what precedes liberalism, especially in religious traditions and, and things like this. Uh, they, they can't, you can't function that way, right? You can't function as, as an atomistic individual that's, re, that's, that's sort of animated solely by instrumental reason. This really makes it hard to, to it seems like, indwell these traditions that came before in liberal society. Yeah. So I think, so I think the starting point is to say, for me, the most important political cleavage is not so much between, you know, right and left or this kind of conventional 
opposition, but between competing views of human anthropology. I think that's how you need to view politics. And I think one of the views, uh, one of the questions we need to think about is how do we build ourselves, right? How do we build our identity? How do we build um, our sources of meaning, this sort of thing? And on the one hand, you have a resolutely liberal view that encourages and glorifies self-construction, right? We build ourselves by and for ourselves. We try to be as independent from kind of communal sources of authority as possible. We don't take anything on faith. We're as self-constructed as possible. And you see this in every domain, right? In knowledge, you have the Cartesian enterprise, which is to start from the self and get all of human knowledge from kind of indubitable axioms that we observe. We don't take anything on faith. The same thing in politics and so on and so forth. And in front of that, we have a kind of more communitarian view. um, And you see iterations of this on, on both the right and the left of we actually build ourselves in dialogue with a set of communal attachments, communal affiliations. um, And it's only through these collective attachments that we build ourselves, right? And I think one of the conventional theories of liberalism, which is the kind of de Tocqueville one, is that liberalism worked so long as pre-liberal institutions, churches, families, community centers, all these institutions did the work that liberalism itself could not do which is to say that was sufficiently solid to provide people with meaning, to provide people with substantive collective attachments, even if the liberal state itself promoted values that were kind of contrary um, to these kind of more uh, community, to this more communitarian mindset. And, and I think that you see in Tocquevillian political theory, which is what makes Tocquevillian liberalism so distinct, which is they, they accept the tension between pre-liberal and liberal institutions. And they say that this tension is actually good because it gets us the best of both worlds. On the one do, hand, the collective attachments. On the other, the, the self-construction and independence. I'm curious. Do you think that that falls apart? It's like a car running on fumes. Eventually, you run out of gas. Like I wonder... Does that kind of synthesis work because there's still a little bit left in the gas tank that we're, that liberalism ha- is still close enough to its pre-modern roots and these other institutions that as I it mean, develops, this tension becomes deeper and deeper? Yeah, I mean, this is basically my hypothesis. I think, I think I mean, it's a very standard one, to be fair. Many people have observed this before me, maybe well long after me. Um, I, think, I think it's extremely difficult when you have a state that actively or de facto promotes kind of atomization, individualism, um, and raw materialism, at least up to a point, for pre-liberal institutions to subsist. In fact, you can look at this empirically, right? You don't need to take me on faith. Um, virtually every society that has gone through liberalization um, or modernization even tends to see, you know, decreasing uh, church attendance, um, decreasing religious fervor, uh, the fragmentation of families, people getting, mar- getting married later, this sort of thing. Um, and to, to some, this is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, but to those of us who believe that kind of the synthesis is what held the system together, it is what is at the root of a lot of kind of crises, Um yeah, I mean, th- yeah, this is uh, this is interesting. So, I mean, are you? I mean, my my sense is that you are not probably very sanguine on um, on the future of this. I mean, I, I mean, basically, is the synthesis dead? I mean, is it is it kind of over? And you're uh, if if you're um, playing doctor here, what's the what's the prognosis here? <laughs> I, th- I think it's difficult to come up with something definite. Like my my basic I- hypothesis is that. If we are not willing to wield state power to, at the very least, support these institutions of communal meaning, they're on the path to ultimate extinction, right, to paraphrase Lincoln. Um, and so I, I think in the piece, I chart two possible paths that are actually compatible in the short run. The first is, I mean, I cite Fukuyama, but it's really been the, the view of the American mainstream for a while, which is 
we use state power in a very minimal way just to encourage a kind of Tocquevillian revival, right? So this is to say we try to support families a little more, we try to support churches a little more. We encourage all these things and we try to engineer a revival of these civil society institutions that have been disintegrating. And then the second more radical path is the kind of resolutely post-liberal one. It's one where we actually are willing to legislate morality all the way. And some people would go as far as say, you know, banning things they don't like, uh, forcing people to do certain things, implementing things such as a kind of national service program, for instance, to use the state to build communal attachments and solidarity between citizens. I'm personally somewhere of an in-between between these two propositions. I think in the short run, they're compatible. Like you see policies such as family policy, for instance, or the idea that you should have child tax credits, you should encourage family formation, you should support families, through economic and and state-driven incentives. Uh, I think that's an idea that's growing, that's having kind of growing currency on both the right and the left. And I think that's because both understand that we do need to preserve these communal units at least up to a point. And I think the post-liberals and the Tocquevillian liberals can agree on this. And so I think the the engines of renewal in the short term are compatible. I think in the longer term, we'll have to have a very serious discussion about to what extent do we actually need state power to provide something more than a negative a negative ideal for it to sustain itself? Yeah, I mean, okay, so you, you're you currently residing in the U.S., right? Yes. I mean, I, I just imagine, I, I imagine it'd be very difficult for the U.S. I mean, we have such a, even among mainstream liber- liberals, people to the left of center, there's just this ingrained sense of, of this negative state, right? I, I don't think, I mean, there, there's some on the far left that may be open to this, but, but I mean, what are the prospects of actually in, in a, 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 a liberal Western state, industrialized state like the, like the United States? I mean, can you imagine we actually do that? I mean, do you think that's actually feasible? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, he, here I have a couple of couple of remarks. The first is that I think there is a tendency to overestimate the degree to which America has always been classical liberal and the degree to which kind of classical liberalism is an integral part of American identity. Um, just remember that, you know, when the founding happens, most states still have blasphemy laws, right? And a lot of the framers and the founders have the opportunity to fight against these blasphemy laws once the First Amendment is ratified. They don't because a lot of them agree with them. Remember that until the end of the Civil War, half of the country, the communitarian South, is resolutely anti-commercial, proto-aristocratic, communitarian, agrarian, and so on. So I think that this this view, and even, even after this, I mean, really the kind of vision of classical America, classical liberal America you get is really a product of, you have a first wave during Lincoln and the unification post-Civil War, then it actually gets weakened with the progressive movement in FDR, and you re-get this kind of classical liberal vision remanufactured um, in the Cold War. And it has since reigned supreme. But I think you see fracture, fractures um, in these narratives on both sides, right? I think on the left, you see a more candid vision to reject classical liberalism. I mean, just take a look. It's very simple. Just take a look at Biden's stimulus package. Right, much more ambitious than anything we've seen. Uh, the the willingness to invest massively in public infrastructure, to have industrial policy, to have family policy. These are things that would have seemed crazy, and you would have been, you know, we'd have been called a communist just thirty years ago if you did this. And you see the same thing on the right. I mean, right wingers who support family policy. Josh Hawley willing to work with Bernie Sanders on a plan to support families. Um, this sort of thing. You know, I'm not saying it's a deep seated movement. I'm saying you do see on both sides a tendency towards towards a change in that regard, in that mindset. I, I remember there's this famous photo at a Tea Party rally where this old guy had this, he was wearing a placard and it said, government, keep your hands off my Medicare. Right. <laughs> <laughs> 
it's like it's one of those things where you're looking at that and you're like it's hard to believe like it looks like a saturday night live sketch or something right um but it's but it's real so yeah i mean you may be right i mean maybe that is and i wonder how much i i do think america the united states and our kind of liberal identity i mean i mean I think because we're a relatively young country and we don't have a pre-modern past the way like, let's say you become an enlightenment democracy like Italy or France or or England, you have this whole pre-modern past and we don't have that here. And so I think we romanticize our founding and romanticize our story a lot, right? Because there's um, um, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs of Blessed Memory and the great, um, great uh, chief rabbi of the UK, he said something at a, at a, at a Zoom event I was invited to, and uh, he said something about the difference between British monuments and American monuments. He's like, there's not text on British monuments. You walk up, there's a monument to somebody, and it's just there. Whereas in, in American monuments, there's all this text. And he's like, because you're a, sto- you're a storied people, and you have to keep learning the story and learning the narrative, right? And so that you know, and you're constantly getting in waves of immigrants, and so it's it, you're a text-driven, story-driven, which I think is is an interesting thing. And maybe, as you're saying, leads to romanticization. Maybe we tell ourselves stories in our texts that that maybe are 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 again kind of romanticized myths. Yeah. So I think I mean, first of all, I will say, and then I want to go back to your to your initial question about the possibility of a post-liberal future in America. But first off, every country tells itself a story. Um, I think the difference, and this is something that has been widely observed, is that America is a little more creedal uh, than most, which is to say, um, so, you know, wh- one, one thing that's interesting is that France and America are among the only countries that right from the start or right from the start, at least in France, it's post-revolutionary France, had the ability of, for people to get citizenship without having kind of American or French blood, right? This is something that a lot of people take for granted. But in Germany, for instance, this was not really the case until the 1980s, right? Like, well, you, you still had a kind of the German folk. Remember that the word folk, which is on the on the, the German parliament to this day, etymologically is more ethnic than it may appear, right? It's not just the word kind of the German people in the sense of whoever happens to be in Germany at this point. It's the German people in the meaningful sense. So I do think there is something about a kind of story-based American people. I think the whole like creedal account sometimes gets overestimated, like, it's pretty clear, for instance, that, like, a lot of what we consider to be the American creed is the direct product of kind of Anglo-Protestant culture, whether we like it or not. Um, and this need not mean that non-Anglos, non-Protestants can't be integrated. But it's just, you know, let's let's not kid ourselves about the degree to which these ideals are universal. But I think this concern of perpetually retelling the American story is something that's very present in the American canon. You know, what, my, one of my favorite speeches by an American statesman is Abraham Lincoln's Lyceum speech. And it's one of the first speeches he delivers. He's a 28-year-old small-town lawyer in Springfield, Illinois at that point. He's nobody. He's nobody. Um, and Abraham Lincoln stands up and delivers this just splendid speech where he says, he says, the silent artillery of time has broken our memory and has kind of, you know, the, the, the whole narrative power of the founding has already been lost. And, you know, this was, what, 1830s or something like that? Uh, so already Abraham Lincoln worried about this story kind of withering away and with it the kind of um, the kind of strength of the American project. And he, in fact, at the end of the speech, he, he invites Americans to erect what he calls a political religion. Uh, and we can debate the meaning of that term. He certainly not, did not mean it in the kind of Jacobin French Revolution sense. But he did want he did want Americans to tell again and again that American story to, to to sustain itself. So I think that's right. One of the things I will say, though, just before we close that 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 part of the talk um, on the possibility of a post liberal America, one of the things we haven't talked about is scale. 
So, you know, you have a beautiful essay in National Affairs called Five Kinds of Liberty, in which the author, I don't remember the name, uh, walks through different kinds of, of liberty within the American canon. And one of the kinds of liberties is uh, Tocquevillian freedom. And that is to say the ability of communities to rule themselves. And so I think you're probably right to say that America will never or is, it's difficult to imagine in America where the federal government legislates morality from the top down and has very robust conceptions of citizenship and this sort of thing. I think it's easier to imagine in America where local governments and state governments and counties uh, are much more interventionist in the day-to-day lives of, of Americans, where maybe you have more participatory democracy type things, where people gather more regularly, have more kind of township-based politics, where people, where local governments are more willing to legislate morality, just because if people don't like him, they can just leave to the city next door, right? And th- there, I think you see something that maybe reconciles the best of both worlds to some degree. Some people like Samuel Goldman, the professor of, uh, I think he's at Georgetown or George Washington University, just, just wrote a book called After Nationalism. And that's where he ends up at the end of the book. He basically has my diagnosis and he says the, 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 the solution is something approximating quasi, you know, semi-independent proto-city states in America with a federal government that chaperones the whole and ensures that people have the right to leave from one community to the next. I mean, this would be a kind of retro, uh, you know, th- this is going back to like, you know, when you talk about Plato and Aristotle in the essay, you know, this is when they're thinking about demo- about. Uh, political life, they're thinking in terms of the city state, right? I mean, the, this is the this is the political unit they're thinking of. And so this would be almost echoing back to the city state. And that and, yeah. and the, 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 the the fundamental political unit wouldn't be the nation, it would be the city state. And and you and you think of yourself less as an American and more like a citizen of Athens, Georgia or Springfield, Illinois, or you know, that you'd have these kind of city states would be the vision. That 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 would be where your political your animating political spirit would come from, is what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, so in, in that model that is, uh and, and, I mean, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I don't necessarily support that model fully, and we can talk about why if you'd like, but it is interesting how the question of scale has largely been evacuated from political thought. Um, you know, if you know, for most of political thought, the question of uh, the history of political thought, the question of scale was, was really center stage. And you're right to say Aristotle, Plato, these people did not think that a robust polity could exist beyond the scale of the city, but not just them, even Montesquieu uh, and Rousseau. Right, like these Enlightenment theorists were talking 18th century, 17th, 18th century, still thought that large polities could be nothing but monarchies and tyrannies, and that if you wanted something more robust, more republican, um, more concerned with the common good and with communal attachments, you had to have something on a small scale. And essentially, the, the modern nation state or the Westphalian nation state, to be a little pompous as we know it, is a creation of, of, of liberalism and of, of kind of late liberal thought. And from that point onwards, we kind of evacuate the question of scale and we take the nation state for granted. But it is true that, you know, maybe we need to rethink this a little more. And maybe even if we don't think we don't move beyond the nation state fully. We need to think about, do we want a nation state that's a little more fractal? Right? We do, you'd have a, a bit more kind of decentralized governance, not in order to have less government, but to in fact have more government intervention, but more government intervention in a kind of fractal, decentralized way. Um, and in fact, you have a lot of things that are, a lot of new technologies that are converging in that dis- direction. So for instance, before, it used to be the case that if you were an ambitious young man and you wanted um, to get a good job in, say, finance, you had to move to New York. Or in a, you wanted to work in a startup, you had to move in San Francisco. 
now we have a future where remote work, it seems, may make it possible for America to become more decentralized. In fact, the Front Porch Republic, you know, the localist journal had a whole issue on this recently. Um, and so, you know, this is one of these things where maybe the past and the future are converging to end the present. Uh, and, and, and sometimes, you know, retro-futurist futures can be more appealing than it seems. I wonder, <clears throat> you know, I often think of different, like, TV shows that um, are, are – are different kind of, you know, real imaginative kind of fantasy for different people in different fields. And I often think that the thing that must be a great fantasy show for political philosophers is The Walking Dead, right? Because you have this zombie apocalypse, and then you have these local city-states, right? And that's the interesting thing to me about the show. It's not the zombies, they're window dressing. I mean, they're like a weather pattern. Like, there's nothing interesting about the zombies in The Walking Dead. The interesting thing is this post-apocalyptic world where people are building different sort of policy, policies, like these, you know, and and these policies interact with each other, right? And sometimes the, the, it's amenable, sometimes they're war, sometimes, but you get these, you know, I remember one, I, I don't know if you've seen the show, but um, th- this main character, Negan, who's the big villain, this Episcopal p- priest gets captured and he walks him through the economy of the villain city-state. And there's a rationality to it, right? Like, and he explains. And so it's it's interesting because that show offers a window into kind of a, a postmodern, pre-modern kind of thing where you're building without the technocratic state, right? Without um, a lot of modern conveniences, you're, you're rebuilding society in these city states, which is just fascinating. Yeah, I mean, so I haven't seen the, the Walking Dead specifically, but I think what is true is that we're basically moving towards a future where we'll have a choice between kind of hyper-centralized states operating at scale. And if we do want these, and I think they will necessarily be technocratic, uh, and it will be kind of a balance between kind of strong executive power and massive bureaucracies, whether we like it or not, uh, or more decentralized models where we have stronger governments that are more kind of proto-pre-modern with maybe more democratic participation at the local level and this sort of thing. I think both of these models have challenges because one of the problems, for instance, with more decentralized forms of government is, okay, what do you do about companies that have super large corporate power and that operate beyond borders, right? I mean, nation states have a hard time as it is controlling these companies. What do you do once the primary political unit is the city state? I mean, what can the city state do against Facebook? Nothing. Right. So that, that's the main challenge. And that, that's one of the reasons why we had, you know, centralization and, and technocratization and this sort of thing. I mean, you know, we, it's not just because the state just got more power to it for itself and so on. It's also because the concentration and organization of private power demanded the concentration and organization of public power. And so I think, I think you have difficulties on both sides. Um, I personally, you know, I, I don't like to, to make too many predictions because I think that political theorists tend to be terrible at these, but I think that you said it will. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that the, the idea that we'll have a choice between these two models is something I'm, I, I feel confident enough about. So you're saying don't take a political theorist to the racetrack and, and, and imagine he's going to get you the winning horse. <laughs> right. Well, you know, you, you, have this, you have this very famous quote by John Maynard Keynes about economists where he says, you know, ask, ask one question to five economists and you'll get five answers, six if one of them went to Harvard. And I think that's basically true for political, political theorists as well. Um, and most of the time, the six answers tend to be wrong and it's somewhere in between and somewhere completely different. So. <laughs> so, I mean, something about this piece that um, when I read it, um, I had a, and, and we talked, I mean, full disclosure, we talked for a couple minutes yesterday, not very long, but just um, so I could reach out to, to schedule the interview. And I asked you a couple questions, so, but I, I had a tough time when I read this piece. I couldn't map you politically or religiously, 
Like I, I really did not. I mean, I it was. I, I loved the piece, and I, I think I probably even made some assumptions at trying to guess. And I think I was probably wrong. So could you just like? I mean, this is sort of a you know maybe bad form, but I, I just could you like do a little self disclosure on how you would map yourself a little bit politically and religiously because because you deal with. I mean. Basically, you've written this wonderful essay on the two things you never bring up at dinner parties, right? Religion and politics. So <laughs> so could you just like give our listeners a little bit of a sense of where you're coming from and how you would identify on the on on the spectrum, it, it, given the fact that these things are all, you know, you know, a, a label is, of course, a libel, but um, label yourself a little bit. You know, absolutely. I mean, the first thing I'll say just on a side note is that um, I'm very glad you say this actually, that you were unable to map me because this is by design. Um, and when I, when I write essays, particularly kind of in kind of public philosophy essays that are different from kind of academic settings where people know each other, they've read, you know, 50 pages, but they've read their work and so on. I think, I think I try to remain as kind of neutral and analytic as I can. Um, even if I don't fully believe in neutrality, but that's a side note. Okay. So mapping myself religiously. So I'm Jewish. Um, but I was born and raised in Morocco till the age of eight, so an, an Islamic uh, constitutional monarchy. And, and then I went to Catholic boarding schools for my entire life. And so I have extremely strong sympathies to all three Abrahamic traditions. Um, I'm very close to a lot of Catholic thinkers, specifically a lot of people who read my work assume that I'm Catholic. Um, I also have written kind of on Islam and I have a lot of sympathy for the Islamic tradition. And so I, I am Jewish, but I, I would say I'm, a, I'm, I'm Jewish with a kind of philosophical inspiration that's, that's more broadly Abrahamic. And then on the political front, on the, on the political front, um, it, it's, I think it's harder to characterize myself. I think if we want to use the, the right-left cleavage, and we could talk about the fact that I don't really believe in the right-left cleavage as much. I think the kind of liberal versus post-liberal cleavage is now much more important. Um, and we can talk about that later on. But I tend to be very lefty on economics, and I'm certainly more progressive on questions of racial justice than the vast majority of conservatives. Uh, I tend to be pretty moderate on social issues. I tend to be pretty conservative to traditionalist on what I would call uh, cultural issues, which is to say... I tend to want education to teach canonical texts. Um, I tend to like kind of traditional aesthetics, um, th this sort of thing. Wow, that's got to get get you. Um, you're not going to win, um, Mister Popularity, at, at the Yale Politics, uh, you know, department. I would guess with that kind of um, with that kind of pedigree. <laughs> I mean, do you find yourself? Do you find yourself as kind of? Uh, well, I mean, you talk about being an Abrahamic kind of you know, soul. I mean, do you find yourself like an Abrahamic wanderer? I mean, is that, do you feel like a wanderer Aramean in sort of the American intellectual life? Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I do, I do think it's complicated. I mean, I do think one of the, there are many advantages to the two party system. Uh, Yan Shapiro, who's a professor at Yale has written like 40 books on why the two party system is glorious in many ways. One of the problems is that it, it does force people into binaries to a greater extent than like, at least I as a foreigner am used to. And so it is difficult to navigate. Uh, I will say, though, that America has like a, a wonderful intellectual life that's almost detached from politics once you dig kind of deep enough. Um, and so, so long as you remain at a kind of sufficient level of abstraction, you actually get to have wonderful discussions and discover kind of unusual overlaps. You know, this is the basic uh, uh, Straussian lesson, right? Like remain at the sufficient level of abstraction and you'll be fine. Just never descend to the kind of l low levels of, of actual practical politics. As long as you can stay in faculty lounge and, and cocktail parties, you're good. I mean, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> 
So I, I wonder. So do you, so do you like so you would also identify? It's interesting because do you, um, you know, you've got this interesting religious story and this interesting kind of political pedigree, which is all over the map. I mean, do you do you also identify as a post liberal? I mean, do you, do you find is there a kind of growing camp of people that are like, hey, we're post liberals, and and you know, is that a, is that a, a sort of identifiable intellectual tribe in America right now? And and do you find each other? And are you, are you kind of dialoguing and exchanging ideas. Yeah, so I mean one of the issues I have with the the term post-liberal even though I would want liberal versus post-liberal to be the main cleavage is that at present it represents people who have very little in common with each other. So you know, I work for a magazine called Palladium um, and they consider themselves to be post-liberal but they're kind of techno-futurists in Silicon Valley. You have certain people who are kind of Catholic integralists that want to who who love kind of medieval states and who consider themselves to be post-liberal. So it does bring together a set of people who have very different ideas of what the kind of normative project should look like. But I would consider myself post-liberal insofar as I think everyone there um, considers that there is something wrong with the kind of social technologies, if you, if you allow me to use that term, that uh, the 17th and 18th centuries have come up with and that we need to update them some somewhat. Now, one of the things I will say is that it's important not to think in dichotomies and to think in spectra instead. So there is, there is no, not, you know, the kind of liberal and then the kind of illiberal, right? There is often on both sides a tendency to think of like, you know, the liberal is someone who's individual autonomy uberalis, rationality uberalis, self-construction uberalis. And then if you don't have that, you have... Iran, theocracies, and reactionaries going to throw us back to the Middle Ages. And it's like, you know, the vast majority of countries operate on a kind of a continuum between these two extremes. And I tend to be someone who thinks that we are too far on the liberal end and that we need to find some kind of synthesis between pre-liberal and liberal societies or pre-liberal uh, and liberal theories that conserves some of the achievements of liberalism. I'm not someone who thinks that, you know, liberalism as a whole is a mistake. I think it emerged for a reason and good. I just think we're at the point in history where we can conserve some aspects and move beyond some others. I mean, so would you say that like, that you're, you, you don't mind liberalism as a means in the sense of certain sort of procedural things that, that assure certain sorts of freedoms and things that, that that's not necessarily a bad thing, but as an end, it's a bad thing in the sense of if liberalism becomes an end in itself, it's not sustainable. It seems like in the sense of it doesn't, it can't do the real political work that you start the essay with, right? That, that Plato and Aristotle wanted to do. And so it's not, it's not as if you want, yeah, like you want some sort of um, feudal society or something that, that, but what no. it seems like what you're saying is liberalism has to realize its own shortcomings and deal with them and 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 get at what how to politically form a, a noble citizenry and and it's got to figure out how to do that and it's either going to be you know it's going to go like one of several different ways it seems like that's the place you're pushing us to is that fair yeah i think it's really right and in fact i mean note that i'm i'm more agnostic as to the means of what that looks like uh, than I am about the importance of realizing the diagnosis. This is why I say, you know, the city-states model is interesting. It has X, Y, Z shortcomings. The kind of centralized state with a strong technocracy and strong executives is also interesting. It has X, Y, Z shortcomings. Um, but I think in in, in the, the broad diagnosis is important. And I think, I mean, the way you put it in terms of the means of the an and the ends is interesting. What I would say is that there is a difference between kind of procedure and proceduralism, right? A lot of states have procedures, right? Late medieval states had procedures, um, but they justified them in very specific ways. One of the things I think is the problem, and this is why your means and distinction becomes, I think, correct, 
is when you kind of fetishize procedure for its own sake and you kind of think that this is the be-all and end-all of politics. I think one of the difficulties is that liberalism throughout the Cold War was trapped in a very convenient trichotomy where it was you were a liberal, a communist, or a fascist. In other words, if you don't believe in racial supremacy and you don't want to starve, you're a liberal. And I think that like that served a valuable purpose when you're in a conflict, right? And you need kind of clear-cut narratives that motivate a nation, that create a clear kind of other against which you're fighting and so on. But if you're willing to be very serious about kind of political theory, this kind of what, what Jadis Clark calls a liberalism of fear uh, is not tenable in the long run. And I think one of the things I'm worried about, and this is why I insist on the diagnosis first and foremost, is that as liberalism comes to greater and greater difficulty, and as you see discontentment um, rising among very different classes, I mean, you, as I said, you have the campus left on the one hand, you have the kind of rural poverty on the other and people who who vote for populist rightists on the other, like all these people, despite their differences, essentially shared that diagnosis that there is something not working. I'm not finding meaning. I'm not finding communal attachments. And I think that the problem is that operating on the kind of Cold War software of dismissing these concerns as forms of like expressions of, you know, fascism, communism, and various iterations in between of authoritarianism or reactionary thought is actually not that helpful. And I think that the first step is to say, actually, they're right about the fundamental diagnosis. They need not be right about the normative project. Um, let's think about concrete paths to actually supply the defects of liberalism, whether it's in a Tocquevillian way or not. Do you, as, as a political philosopher, I mean, <clears throat> is it sort of, uh, is there this kind of, I, I, I just wonder existentially and emotionally, as you think through these sorts of possible ways forward that you think you've got the diagnosis right my guess is and but yet the kind of treatment is unclear i mean do you feel like some sort of terminally ill patient where like you're never going to see like, yeah, you know i'm not i'm never going to kind of climb the mountain i wanted to climb or something i mean do you i mean how do you deal with that where it's probably i would guess the case that you're not going to see most of what you think would be the kind of reimagined political projects in your lifetime no that again that I might be really wrong about that. Radical things happen. Big changes happen. But I mean, it just seems like the gravitational pull of the status quo, especially the nation state status quo, you know, it's kind of, it, 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 it do you, do you ever like lament like, oh my gosh, okay, I'm working all the, on all this <laughs> and things aren't really going to change much. Or, or are you more optimistic that maybe real, the kind of real structural changes you're thinking of, do you think they are possible in your lifetime? I, th I think they could be possible in, the, in my lifetime. I, w I would estimate spontaneously that they won't happen during my lifetime. Uh, but I think it's almost good because it makes my task easier to some degree. Uh, so you can build the ideal <laughs> theory on you can build the ideal theory on the side if you'd like. But to some degree, all my task is very basic: is to formulate the diagnosis and then do these very basic things that get us to the same direction. And this is where I say it's very convenient that both the Tocquevillian option and the post-liberal option can agree at the beginning on a wide variety of policies and a wide variety of directions, because that's basically all that's going to happen, I would, I would assume, during my lifetime. And that's good enough, in a way. You know, so I said it in the Lyceum speech before, and it's funny because Lincoln actually has a reflection on this theme where he's like, he looks at the founders and he says, look, at the time, great men were refounding or rather founding a society out of thin air, right? They were building a new system, something glorious. And that was how they sought glory. They fought the British. They established something completely new. They changed the course of human events and so on. And then he reflects upon his own place in history and his own generation. He's like, you know, holy shit, the, the best thing we can do is just to preserve what they've built. 
like that's glory for us is to like try not to mess it up too much. Um, and then he tries to reflect upon it. He says, but there is something, you know, glorious about sheer preservation. Uh, and in the same way, even if I don't necessarily want us to preserve too many things, um, I think there is something, you know, important and vital about understanding your place in the kind of cycles of history and try to think, you know, our place right now is to get the diagnosis right and get us kind of started on the kind of springboard to renewal, if you'd like. And if we do that right, um, we'll have kind of fulfilled our role in history. And that's fine by me. I think, you know, I'm someone, I, I love ancient political thought. So I love to think of history in cycles. Um, and I think that just understanding where you are in terms of like the narrative construction cycle of history is important. I do think that being at the point of history where America, you know, America reinvents itself once every kind of 75 years, right? You have the founding, then you have the civil war and the Whig vision of Lincoln, the triumphs after the civil war. Then you have FDR and the progressive revolution. And then you have like the end of the cold war and us basically, right? What do we do once cold war narratives and cold war institutions are uh, no longer viable. And I think that to be in that moment is actually very exciting, even if we don't see it through the whole way. It's interesting because you, you, well, a couple of things. I was thinking about what you were saying about Lincoln and, and procedure. Like, I mean, there's, um, I'm a kind of native Philadelphia area guy, and there's something in Philadelphia called the Constitution Center. And it's this glorious museum. I mean, it's massive, right? It's, it's, um, it, it, it's lovely place to visit. But it's funny, like, I just can't think of another nation state that has a whole mu- center dedicated to their constitution. <laughs> like, like it's, this, it's this romanticized thing, right? And it's, 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 you know, and they have all these Americana kind of projects. I mean, I remember going there for a Bruce Springsteen exhibit. But it's just interesting that we, but by nature, I mean, I guess, you know, it's interesting because you're talking about Lincoln's Lyceum speech. I guess that's sort of necessary for the American project to have that kind of constitutional piety. Otherwise, I guess we wouldn't make it. I mean, th- th- because that is our kind of mythic narrative, right? It's 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 interesting to be part of a, a society that, that I guess, is it fair to say that like our myth is, is anchored on a document? So I think that's true, but I think that's actually one of the things that worries me. And this is when I try to, when I talk about kind of fetishizing procedure, which is, I think it's important, but at the same time, like, I think it's kind of sad that we don't celebrate the kind of philosophical background of the founders and their kind of actual objectives and their vision of the good uh, than we do the actual kind of document they produced, which is to say, you know, when they wrote the Constitution, they believed the Constitution to be the instantiation of, say, natural law for some of them. Some of them were more, were more sympathetic to the Enlightenment than others. Some of them were more pre-modern and Christian than others. But, you know, there is the whole natural law tradition underpinning and, and a whole vision of the common good underpinning the Constitution. Um, and we can disagree with it or, or agree with it, but I think one of the dangers of celebrating the text and the document by and, and, and by itself is that you, there, is, there is what some people call the cargo cult syndrome, which is to say you keep on acting and rehearsing the same procedures and you fetishize them for their own sake, but you lose what they mean. And, you know, and just, and so they become thinner and thinner. And one morning, one generation wakes up and, and just asks, you know, why are we doing this again? And everyone has forgotten by, by this point because no one actually remembers the kind of philosophical and religious backbone that underpins the whole superstructure. And I think that's one of the risks when you detach things too much from substantive visions of the good life, which is, you know, there is a, 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 an essay by Orwell where he's, he talks about the Nazis and he says, you know, say what you want about the Nazis, but like, you know, they have a vision of the good where people are willing to die for it. And it's extremely difficult for us 
to have that kind of like romantic elan until you have an external enemy, right? The external enemy is what gets us going. It's strictly negative vision. But in terms of positive vision, it's extremely difficult for us to want to die for what we have. Um, and, I, and I think that this is this is kind of, I mean, you know, and we, we can disagree with Orwell, we can, you know, whatever. But I think that he's getting at something very important here, which is like, at some point, if you don't want one generation to wake up and say, why are we doing this and be incapable of answering the question, um, you do, this is where you do need the kind of deeper, deep, deep-rooted uh, anchor upon which to build your whole kind of procedural superstructure if you have to have one at all. Yeah, and it's interesting. <clears throat> As you say that, like it brings me back to something we talked about earlier about the sort of liberal states kind of anthropological anchors or this individualism and rational and, and rationalism you know, vis-a-vis in, instru- instrumental reason. And that just seems like these are the kind of people that are not, the, the, the more we bequeath that legacy to generations, okay, to be a good American is to be individualist and rationalist, the less capable we are of the big meaningful story. I think because the big meaningful story often takes, th- th- these are myths. And, and I, I don't mean myth in a derogatory sense. I mean, I mean myth in the best sense, like these founding stories that are transrational you know they're you know they're these epic you know kind of you know these are it's 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 the exodus story or something it's the it's these these narratives that that give a people meaning and i just think you know if if you know stanley harawas the great um, ethicist at duke said you know that the liberal story is that you should be part of no story except the story you choose from the position of autonomy and that's not a story right great stories and traditions choose you you don't choose them, right? Like, and the and the, the 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 at the point you think you instrumentally chose the tradition of the story, it's not a story, and it's 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 a consumer good, and I don't know how we recover from that. That's right. No, I think that's right. I mean, the general phrase is, I use is that we tend to delude ourselves into thinking that uh, we make history more than history makes us, um, and 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 I think this is one of the issues that you see with liberalism, which is that ideally in liberal societies, every generation would kind of come to liberal principles from from scratch over and over again, where they will all go through the Cartesian process, they will all use their reason to get to the same conclusions, get to liberal conclusions, and then be convinced. The problem is that this is not how human beings actually operate, as you rightly observe. And so it's it's a very paradoxical situation where even liberal societies are conscious that they need to operate in slightly illiberal ways, right? Like the reality is that even in liberal societies, you are conditioned to believe on faith to some degree that liberal axioms are the correct ones, right? This is why I say you have the whole kind of Cold War mythology. This is where you need an American story that is indeed romanticized. But again, it's not necessarily a bad thing that it's romanticized because we all need stories. Um, And so, it's one of these things where you have this tension where even liberal societies have realized that a kind of illiberal element is necessary. It's just that as far as I'm concerned, they haven't gone all the way and haven't realized that like actually there were axioms about um, human self-construction or like thereof that need fundamental revision. And if we are willing to accept that they need revisions when it comes to accepting collecting atta- collective attachments to the nation, then maybe we also need fundamental revisions when it comes to collective attachments to the church, to the family, to these other kind of communal units. And I think it's like, you know, again, I, I, I say this in the piece, but, um, you know, I think a lot of the campus left, you know, it's, it's become a very common take to say the campus left has like a new religion and so on. Um, but but I think one of the, the questions you might two of the questions you might ask is one like can you blame them? 
Um, and two, isn't it fully natural to seek for other kinds of communal affiliation when the ones that used to fulfill that function have been dismembered? So in other words, is it that surprising that, you know, you have a, the famous survey that says that, you know, um, minorities in the U.S. consider that race is an integral part of their identity to a significantly greater degree now than they did five years ago. And so, you know, then the traditional reaction to that on both the liberal center and the right is to say, oh, my God, um, you know, this is racialism, wokeness, people taking over, neo-Marxist in universities, whatever. Um, but the actual question we should be asking is, isn't that just a sign that people are desperately thirsting for collective attachments um, and for kind of broader narratives that go beyond themselves? And isn't it natural that this takes new forms as you dismember conventional sources of attachment that it used to provide people with meaning? And so you, you can then have a discussion about what kinds of collective attachments do we want? What kinds are legitimate and so on? But the idea that you would kind of dismiss these this deep, deep-seated thirst for collective attachment outright is, I think, one of the pathologies of, of people who still work in the Cold War frame and refuse to move beyond it. Where do you find your collective attachments? I mean, is, is a guy, I mean, you're um, a young guy. Um, you're, you know, a grad student. You're, you're figuring your way in the world. It, wh- where do you find communities of meaning? Is it, is it in religious circles? Is it in civil circles? I mean, how do you, like, where do, where, do you, are you able to find those? Because, I mean, a lot of us can't find them. Yeah, I mean, f- for me, I think um, I have had kind of a, a religious reawakening in college. Um, you know, I, I used to be, far away from people of my faith. I was for most of my life, right? I was born in a country where the first eight years of my life, I was the only kind of white kid and the only Jewish kid in my school. The others were kind of Muslims typically. Uh, and then I went to schools where everyone was Catholic or Anglican. Um, and this has been a wonderful experience. As I said, it has developed deep ties to other Abrahamic faiths in my intellectual construction. But it has also meant that I did not find a true religious community until I got to college. And I have found a kind of Jewish society at Yale. Uh, um, that is very important to, to my process of self-construction. I think another thing that, that people don't, and people don't necessarily think about universities this way, but I actually think that academic circles are a true community. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I know that now, you know, universities are getting commodified more and more. And, it's, you know, the idea is you go to college, you maximize for GPA, you take easy classes, uh, you do your extracurriculars, you learn more outside the classroom, quote unquote, than inside. Um, and then, you know, you graduate and you go work at McKinsey and Goldman Sachs. But I actually think that uh, there is something deep about the university. I mean, you know, something, sorry, this is kind of an aside, but isn't it extraordinary that we are among the people for whom society has set aside a couple of years for us to be in an institution where all we have to do is read great books, write essays, and think about the good life, like full time. That's extraordinary, right? The vast majority of human beings did not have that opportunity. And I think it does create deep-seated bonds between kind of partners of inquiry, if you'd like. I think it creates deep-seated bonds between teachers and students in this way, between students of similar disciplines, particularly in the humanities. And I do think there is something... um, Leo Strauss has a wonderful lecture on the, on the virtue of a liberal education, and he calls it a, a, a non-interrupted conversation between the dead and the living, uh, and be, between the living and, 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 and the ones who are yet to come as well. Um, and, and I think that's kind of right. And so for me, I think the, the two most important sources of communal affiliation are a religious one on the one hand and an academic one on the other. If you were going to give advice to I have a lot of religious um, folks who listen. I mean, it's a diverse audience, but there are a lot of religious folks who listen. And if you were going to give advice to people in religious communities or, you know, there, there are ministers and priests and rabbis listening right now, 
What would you say as a political theorist? Like, hey, this is, you know, given your own sense of where things are going, if you were just going to say, hey, as a political theorist, here's what, here, here's what I would say. Here's my two cents about, you know, what I think your, your best contribution going forward could be. What would you say to them? Like, let's say you had a group of priests, rabbis, and ministers, and you were giving them some insights from your own work. Like, what would you say to them? Yeah, I mean, first I'd begin by saying thank you, uh, because I think that they are kind of, no, seriously, you know, they are the pillars of this kind of Tocqueville order that's, that is being dismembered. And I think that the work that they do is more important um, than it has been in a long time. Uh, but the second thing I will say is try to find a balance um, between what we might call the Benedict option um, and excessive public engagement in public life. So I think that one of the strong temptations for uh, religious people, whether they are, you know, priests or whether they are in the lady, um, is to retreat and adopt a strictly defensive mode to say, you know, kind of modernity is not for me or this kind of modernity is not for me anyway. And this is where you get, again, temptation to have the Benedict option, to leave into the woods, or even if you don't live into the woods, to kind of retreat into your own community within your city um, and elsewhere. And I think that's very important on, on, on to some degree. Like I think that this whole defense and protection of what you already have and the preservation function of, of the church and of other religious institutions is very important. But I think there is, there is a balance to be found between that and engagement in public life. And I think that like, hopefully if we can have religious people that compartmentalize in their lives and are on the one hand, very well grounded in their com community, active and mindful of the things to be preserved in their, in their own communal circles, but at the same time willing to not abdicate their responsibilities and their moral obligations to society at large and to bring that communal vision to the broader public sphere and to fight for it as fervently as they can, um, I, I think I think that that's, that's going to be very helpful. Matisse, you've been very helpful. And I, I, I really thank you for your writing. And I will put some links in the show notes where people can find you and follow you. I, I, I encourage all my listeners, uh, you will not regret reading Matisse's work and, and listening to his stuff. So um, thanks for doing your writing and thanks for spending some time on the podcast talking to me about it. I'm really grateful. Well, thanks so much. It was great to be here. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. If you like what you've heard here, please do a few things for me. Go share about this episode in iTunes. Write a review. Give it a rating. Share the love and goodness. Or go on social media. Share a link to the episode on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. Please pass along the love and goodness if you've experienced it here. Thanks again. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Give and Take. And until next time, friends, fare thee well. <laughs>